Welcome to Hunting Fatherhood. I'm Brandon Scully. I interview people who are passionate about hunting and fishing to explore the ways nature nurtures our relationships with those who share it with. I can't wait to share their stories with you. Stick around. Joining me today is Mrs. Lily Raff McCullough. Lily is a Marylander living in Bend, Oregon with her husband Scott and their two sons. Lily chronicled her journey as an adult onset hunter in Call of the Mild, learning to hunt my own dinner back in 2012. She's since become an advocate for hunters and conservation. Lily, I'm so pleased you're joining me on Hunting Fatherhood. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I'm an adult onset hunter like yourself. And a little over a year ago, I was working on a book about my journey into hunting. And in the process, I broke what I understand to be a cardinal rule of writing, which is to um, not read anything on the topic in which you're writing about. So I picked up, you know, Call of the Mild, which prompted me to put my writing effort on hold. And so I, I saw that it had been recently translated to German. And how was your book doing? <laughs> um, the book's been, you know, it's been out a while. I mean, it came out um, in June of 2012. So it's in some ways it's done well in that I've had a long go and I've, I'm still here talking about it nine years later. Um, it didn't sell very well. Um, so. It wasn't, you know, a huge blockbuster success. A mixed bag, I guess you could say. Cult classic. A cult classic. There you go. Yeah. But it's pretty cool that it was translated into German, which is um, was just kind of this thing that fell out of the sky. This American um, who writes a lot in German. He's a German studies professor at Vanderbilt or retired um, professor from Vanderbilt was writing this article about hunting for a German magazine and came across my book and became a fan. And he went out and did all of it. And he found a publisher in Germany who was interested. He translated it. He, he did it all. It was kind of cool. And I right. have never read it because I don't <laughs> read German. <laughs> well, we'll just assume that it is a, a faithful translation. Yes. I, I, that's what I assume. <laughs> I asked you to be on the podcast for a couple of reasons. Foremost is that your story to me was interesting, but you did a really good job of outlining what I think are some of the major themes of hunting beyond just bloodthirst. Um, I think many uninformed people may see this as the only reason people hunt in the first place now that you can go buy meat at the grocery store or just not eat meat at all. Um, tell us why you started hunting. It was a combination of things for me. I had... Um moved from New York City out to Central Oregon, where I live now, to Bend, Oregon, um, to work for the newspaper here. And I'd had a combination of different things happen in the first couple of years that I was living here. Um, one, the biggest thing is that I met the man who is now my husband, Scott, who's not a hunter, but he is a fly fisherman. And he started taking me fly fishing. And um, I it just felt like this totally new way of looking at rivers to me. I could suddenly look at a river and see where fish might be. And I could figure out where I would stand to cast if I was trying to catch those fish and how I would 
let my fly drift or um, swing. And it just was like learning a new language. It just unlocked this huge mystery to me. And one of the reasons that I became interested in hunting was to see if I could learn to read landscapes the way fishing taught me to read rivers. Um, but there were a couple of other things that happened at the same time. I was covering this rural area for the newspaper and I kept meeting all these hunters and they just were not who I had expected hunters to be. They were people who um, knew so, I mean, this sounds so stupid now, but I was really naive. And they were just people who knew so much about the animals that they were hunting and had so much love for those species that it was really surprising to me. I had thought of hunters as being more, I don't know, adversaries um, towards what they were hunting. And so it was just, it just really shifted how I looked at hunting. And then the other, the third thing that was happening at the same time is that um, the locavore movement was gaining steam. Michael Pollan had just written The Omnivore's Dilemma and he'd written a little scene about hunting. Um, and I just was thinking more and more about where my food was coming from and what my relationship with animals was like. And these three things kind of converged and I just thought, I'm going to learn to hunt and see what that's like. Cool. I, um, it's, you, you've tackled a lot of the things that I want to talk about over the next hour or so. So um, the first one is that, you know, food for me was the major reason that I wanted to start hunting. And it wasn't so much to provide food, but more to understand and to incur that full cost of eating meat. Um, it's been 15 years since you started. So uh, what is hunting like for you now? Well, I I have young kids now that have really gotten in the way of my hunting. So the last couple of years in particular, my hunting just dwindled down. I mean, right before I had um, my first son, I was doing a lot of hunting. Um, it was it was definitely the focus of our fall. Um, and now it's something that I do. I get out and hunt ducks a couple times a year, probably. So my relationship with hunting is greatly diminished recently. But, um, but I will say it's also something that's on the horizon. And so I'm aware of it a lot of the time. Um, my kids are not of an age where I feel like they're ready to actually start handling guns and learning to hunt, but we are doing a lot of things with them that I think will help give them a better foundation than I ever had when I first started learning to hunt. Um, they're both really comfortable outdoors. So we do a lot of camping. We do a lot of recreating outdoors, regardless of the weather. Um, being outside in bad weather is something that um, has is still a struggle for me. It was something that I had a really hard time getting used to as an adult. So it's, it's a big advantage that my kids already have. Um, but we just do a lot of being outside and learning our way around the outdoors. So um, I do a lot of mushroom hunting still, because that's a very, um, in a lot of ways that scratches the same itches that hunting did for me. I mean, it's it's got the food connection and the landscape connection and the time outdoors, um, but it's just a lot easier with kids. You can just walk around for until somebody has a temper tantrum and then get back in the car and go home. Sure. We, uh, we're right about to hit, um, mulberry and, and loquat season here in South Carolina. We, my son and I like to walk around and we forage in, in yeah. the city streets. 
Uh, yeah. Not, not mushrooms, but it's, it's a good way to figure out, you know, where your food is coming from. And Yeah, we do that too. Some urban foraging. There's a lot of fruit trees in the town that we live in and um, a lot of raspberries that grow along people's alleyways. So they're in the right of way and you can legally pick them. Um, yeah, I mean, foraging is a great, I think it's a great activity for kids and it helps encourage them to, you know, try new foods and be a more adventurous and healthy eater. Um, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a little baby step towards hunting. My kids are both, uh, both do some bow and arrow shooting too. So we do a little bit of archery, which is really fun. They're really gung ho about it. They're not good at it, but they're really excited when we go for a hike we can bring, I have a long bow and we can bring it, um, and do a little bit of target shooting and it makes them willing to hike a lot farther. If we have that's, that. that, that's a nice hack there. You just, you know, what is a bow weigh? Not much, but not much at all, especially when there's kids fighting over who gets to carry it. <laughs> Genius. Teach them how to paint the fence. Make it. Yeah. Fun. We do a lot of fishing too. And we've been doing, um, more and more river recreating. So this year, actually we're, we're, um, in a few weeks, we're going to get our first raft. Um, but we've done quite a few overnight, um, float trips with our kids the last few years. And this year, I think we're going to really bump it up quite a bit with our own raft in the family. Um, but yeah, I think just doing, um, you know, just having outdoor adventures and because of the fishing, our kids are pretty there. It's funny, you know, I was so nervous about killing an animal for the first time and my kids may be too, when it comes to actually hunting, but with fishing, it's the opposite. Like they just want to keep every fish that they catch, no matter how tiny it is. Um, they're, they're just really, they're just crazed to eat whatever they, whatever they catch. <laughs> that's, so That's great. I mean, how big is the sardine? <laughs> there you go. You need to catch quite a few of those though, to make it worth doing anything with them. That's true. Um, we're, we're about the same age. I estimated this based on the fact that after reading your book, I was compelled to delete references to the Oregon Trail uh, <laughs> as my early exposure to hunting from my manuscript that we talked about there. So um, I am drawn to this idea of uh, hunting IQ, which I picked up from one of my other guests. Basically, it's how long you've been hunting, right? Mine is about three, uh, going on four. Mm-hmm. And I very much consider myself a new hunter. Most people my age that hunt have an IQ of something like 30 or 35. Um, have you stopped thinking of yourself as a new hunter yet? No, no, not at all. Um, in fact, it's one of the things that I used to really worry about was how, um, even before I had kids, just thinking about having kids, I worried about how I could possibly teach them to hunt. Cause I'm just so such a rube when it comes to it. I mean, so much of my learning to hunt too has been just me and my husband who doesn't hunt, just like figuring it out for ourselves. You know, I've gone out hunting with some other people who knew what they were doing a couple of times, but most of my hunting experience has just been like the two of us fumbling around, you know, trying to essentially invent hunting from scratch. (laughs) Um, and so I'm, I'm really not, not that skilled at it. Um, I have this I, there are some people, though, that I think of as hunting mentors that I haven't even really hunted with, but that I've spent a lot of time talking about hunting with. And there's one in particular who's a journalism mentor of mine who's also a hunter. And he really shifted my perspective on this because 
he learned to hunt as an adult with his two sons uh, when they were, you know, 11 or 12 and decided to take hunter safety. He took it with them. And he said that it was just this really incredible bonding experience for the three of them to all be learning something at the same time. Um, he said that some of his best memories with his kids ever um, are, you know, them in a duck blind and his two sons are just like on the ground rolling around laughing at a terrible shot that he took where he missed a duck by, you know, 50 yards or something. And he said that he just looks back on it and thinks it was this incredible experience in part because they were equals, you know, they were all learning it together. And um, so much of what we do as parents, we're, we're teaching our kids or we're the ones correcting everything that they do, um, demonstrating or being the role model for them. And so this, you know, just got rid of that right away, knocked him off the pedestal right at the beginning. And so to him, it made hunting this even more incredible experience and this better, even better bonding experience. Sure. I've really clung to that story because I feel like... Um, really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good I am at hunting. When my kids and I go out together, it's going to be about this shared experience. And so I don't need to have it all figured out. In fact, I, I, I think it won't take very long for my kids to surpass me, just knowing their personalities and, and having this, this comfort level with being outdoors. And I mean, they're little outdoorsmen already. They're really, um, I don't know, they're just really competent little people. I've got a badass mom who takes them out finding mushrooms and catching fish. I mean, they're really good at finding mushrooms. I mean, my my five year old, he's almost six. You know, he's so much lower to the ground than I am. He's very observant. I mean, we we laugh about it. I mean, he we'll all have like a little canvas bag. We go out and he outpicks everybody in the family by, you know, he comes back with twice as many mushrooms as the rest of us do. That's great. That's yeah. Great. You know, I, I like that what you just talked about there because it having a child makes you very vulnerable in ways perhaps that you don't understand how you're going to be vulnerable, right? And and not letting them see that is kind of a lot of what we spend our time as adults doing, right? We're just kind of winging it, but not trying to like not convey the sense that we're winging it. And here you're saying that your mentor essentially said, no, well, just let them see you be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and that, so that's a... It's important, I guess, right? Like, yeah, it's a, it's such a valuable lesson to show them that you can you um, that you can enjoy doing something and you can reap a reward from doing it and get value out of it without being really great at it. Sure, um, it's that's hard, not, right? That's we, not the point. Yeah, yeah. We say that it's, we tell our son all the time that you can do hard things, right? And it's hard mm -hmm. to go out in the cold and the dark and be uncomfortable and and come back empty handed. Um, so, so I like that. I like that sentiment a lot. Um, you know, and it's funny because um, I, there's a lot of things that you're talking about here that I, that I have that I want to talk about uh, that all keep converging. And one of them is that, um, you know, I love the arc in your story where you meet um, these people, you have this preconceived notion about hunters and who they are as people. And you find out that they're actually really people and they're really nice. And there's these essentially very informed conservationists. Um, and, I also like how nice, or at least in my experience, these people are, right? So as a story um, that happened to me recently, we, a, f a friend and I, his name's Joe, 
went out and he doesn't hunt. And I, like I said, I've, I've got a three year IQ of hunting and, and I took him out to teach him how to squirrel hunt. So clearly I'm a novice trying to teach this other novice how to do it. We're fumbling around. The very first thing we do before we even get there is we get stuck in his Jeep, which didn't have four wheel drive in the mud, but we are within, I don't know, 50 yards of where we intended to walk into the woods. And so we just grab the guns, cross the highway, walk into the woods. And, um, and there's a guy there in his truck and we're like, you know, sorry to sneak up on you in the pre-dawn hours like this, but we were intending to go squirrel hunting here and we literally can't go anywhere else because we're stuck in the mud. And he's like, Oh, well I'm just here to, you know, um, scout turkeys and I'll help you guys get out of the mud and then I'll be on my way and I'll go scout turkey somewhere else. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was just kind of a, the blind leading the blind into the receptive <laughs> arms of a more mature um, and very helpful hunter and informed conservationist. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, I think I've, I have had a similar experience where people who are um, people who identify as hunters and have a lot of experience hunting are really enthusiastic about somebody who shows any interest at all. I mean, I think, I think you can, it's probably, it's hard to make a lot of generalizations about hunters, but I think there's a good segment of society that kind of villainizes what they do or misunderstands what they do. And so um, when somebody is not a hunter or is not an experienced hunter, but still approaches them with open-mindedness and some warmth, um, they get excited. I also think hunting is something that can just take over somebody's life and brain. And so um, it's a passion for people. And so they're just excited to talk about it to anybody who, who wants to listen and hear about it. I've always been impressed with how many people wouldn't know me at all, but would hear that I was learning to hunt and would invite me to go hunting with them. I mean, it's, that's crazy. It, it is. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm a, uh new to this and I've talked to a lot of people as part of this podcast. So I can totally um, kind of understand where you're coming from. And everyone, you know, I, I ask a lot of people that have no reason to talk to me other than I'm a hunter and a dad. And I say, Hey, do you want to do this podcast? Mm -hmm. And they're like, heck yeah. Heck yeah. I want to do this podcast, you know? And, and, and so I'm very surprised when I, when people that I think have no people with just very busy schedules, uh, they're just like, yeah, I've got time for you. Let's talk about it. So um, yeah. Do you think, do you think in general that 95%, you know, 95% of the population that doesn't hunt has something to learn from these other 5%? Oh yeah, definitely. I do. I mean, I think, I think back to my idea about hunting before I started learning to hunt and I was so wrong about so many things, big things and small things. And um, yeah, I mean, I think getting to know a person who's different from you just increases your humanity period and in your perspective. And I think particularly when the experience that that other person has is relevant to all of our lives, which I mean, really hunting, even, you know, a vegan who, um, you know, doesn't want to have anything to do with killing animals whatsoever. Um, it's unavoidable. I mean, their, their soybeans that they eat are grown on a farm where hunting occurs. I can guarantee it. I mean, deer will eat the soybeans if if some type of hunting isn't taking place. Um, and even if hunting for some reason didn't take place on that particular farm, some other form of killing of wildlife would take place. And there's just this, this cycle of life that we're all a part of. And I think 
um, hunters have a privileged window into that cycle that can benefit other people. Just, you know, even by just making them a little bit more thoughtful about land management or, um, you know, how farming works. There's just, yeah, I think it's, I think it's relevant to people whether they realize it or not. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm constantly thinking about this. It's, it's weird because I can't just shut it off. Right. Like I want to not think about this, but you know, you, th- you talk about those vegans or the vegetarians that eat these types of things. And it's like, well, you know, that's grown on a farm. So things had to die for that farm even to exist. Right. We had to cut down a whole ecosystem to put a monoculture there, you know? So I, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, the more you hunt or, and think about where your food comes from, just the more complicated it becomes. And the more you realize that, um, you know, making a decision about like, what's the most ethical, what's the most ethical dish on a menu at a restaurant, for example, it's so complex and we do not have perfect information. Um, I think that there are absolutely times where, um, you know, a a venison steak that some rural person has uh, hunted and gotten out of their freezer has way less um, of an environmental effect on the planet or less detrimental effect on the environment. Let's put it that way than some vegetarian meal that somebody's purchased, particularly when you start factoring. They're just, it's just so complex. It's not just the deaths, it's the transportation, it's the farming practices, like the seasonality. It's, um, you know, what did that land that's being farmed used to be and how is it managed now? And what are the effects of that on local wildlife and local communities? And um, I mean, the world is really complicated and food is a big part of it. Um, I'm not saying this to, I think sometimes I can think about it and it just starts to feel so overwhelming that it's easy to just think, ah, there's no difference then between, you know, eating meat and eating vegetarian meal. And I think there's a huge difference, but I just think it's, it's so complicated and we, we don't have perfect information. And a lot of times these across the board rules, like not eating meat or not eating animal products, um, you start getting into the nitty gritty and it's, it's just, they don't There's mean no right what, what you think they mean. Yeah. Sure. No, it's, it's very hard. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, does it change my, how you? Does it change how you uh, shop for food or buy meat or prepare meals for your family? We we spend a lot of time thinking about where our food comes from. Before I started hunting, I got into boucherie, um, which is a thing that they do down here. And boucherie is French for slaughter, or, mm-hmm. or maybe it's, it's bloodbath. But basically, it's it's you take a live animal on on Saturday and Sunday, it's a meal. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the one that I happen to go to was is put on by a local pig farmer and he involves chefs, notable chefs from around the country. Right. And they come in on Friday and, you know, they start with shellfish and poultry. Saturday is um, goats and rabbits and stuff like that. And Sunday there's a hog. Right. And everybody watches the killing of the hog and it's very reverent. But everybody there who watches the killing of the hog is then encouraged to help make that hog go from a formerly breathing animal to something that's going to wind up on your plate, right? Whether that's taking the hair off or mm-hmm. you know, help, helping butcher it or stuff. Right. And so that's how I got into it because I remember growing up and you would go to the grocery store. We went to this place called meat farms, but there would be a, a recognizable animal hanging in an exposed refrigerator, right? You could see it as a consumer and you could go to the, 
the refrigerator case and you could get tripe and eyeballs and tongue and you can understand that these cuts of meat came from an animal right and now you can't buy that stuff it all goes to the renderer and you what you see is a is a styrofoam package or a plastic you know cellophane wrapper with just a cut of pinkish squishy stuff and you're like well okay well fine right and so I think about it a lot. We we want we want our son to understand where his food comes from, which is why, you know, I I've talked about this already, but I take him crabbing and I want mm-hmm. to take him fishing and he's eating deer tacos and he's crazy about it. And we talk about the squirrels that are still in my freezer and he he gets it, right? I think he or at least he he can articulate that. He may not understand it, right? Because he's still very young, but I want yeah. him to be able to understand it and understand what the cost actually is. So and we go and we visit farms, right? We stay a lot on farms with Airbnb. I love Airbnb because you can get on a working farm and say, this is where your milk comes from. This is where, you know, your meat comes from. Yeah. Uh, we kept bees for a number of years and we're trying to get back into keeping bees. And and it's it, it, it's something that has really gotten away and it's weird uh, because it's really gotten away from people because I think a lot of it is probably because of HOAs and, and cities. And I say that. But at the same time, you think about cities like, you know, there are still people still keep bees and chickens in New York City, right? New York City is like, it's New York City, but you can still find these aspects. And and it was interesting when we went overseas, my wife and I went to the Netherlands and and, um, it's very different over there. Livestock is very much still on the urban periphery, um, at least in the Netherlands. And I'm sure it's like that all over the, the, the EU, but, you know, you can find people who keep not just, you know, a chicken or, or maybe some bees, but, but goats and sheep and, and, and stuff just yeah. in the suburbs. So. Yeah. But, you know, um, before I moved to Bend, when I was living in New York, I worked on a cooking show for, I was working in the um, film and TV industry and I worked on a cooking show called cooking in Brooklyn. And we did an episode where, uh, or maybe a couple of episodes actually, where there's, it was like this, sort of reality show where the, like each episode had kind of a, it wasn't really a reality show. They were sort of scripted. My, my aunt actually described it better as like, as like porn where there's like a very loose plot. That's kind of (laughs) weird, you know, this very contrived plot and it sort of ties the episode together, but really it's just a chance for him to cook. Um, There was, there were a couple of episodes where he started with a live animal and putting the show together, we had to find there are a couple of places in in New York City where they raise animals for meat and they have them there live. And the the difference is that most people most white people, um, you know, who are <laughs> a couple of generations have, have lived here for a couple of generations, are just so removed from that. They don't even know that these things exist in these neighborhoods in New York City. But um for certain cultures, it's really important that you have the animal start out alive for whatever, you know, it will end up as a meal, but it needs to start out alive. And so, um, yeah, even in New York City, there are live goats and all those things that you just mentioned. They're there. They're living there. They're just easy to not see if you're not looking for that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very much looking for it. So, um, <laughs> and, and I and I and I get it right. Like I. I've been there. You can see, you know, in Chinatown, the ducks still yeah. hanging in the window and for sure. Um, 
All right. So I took my hunter's ed course in 2012, which was the year your book was published, even though I didn't hunt for the first time for another five years after that. And I remember sitting through that as the only adult student, which, you know, you had a similar experience. Mm -hmm. Um, When I sat through that class, I was checking a box and I felt like the instructor was checking a box. Um, I'd received firearms training in the Coast Guard. Handling firearms wasn't part of our hunter's ed. I was a Boy Scout. So anything about general outdoor safety was looking um, or looking at animal sign was a refresher. And then the only thing I came away from that experience with was this idea that turkey hunting is potentially dangerous because folks are running around in the woods in total camo trying to call birds in and it's possible they might mistake each other for turkeys and shoot each other. Yeah. Um, So I was a little jealous or envious when I read about your hunter's ed experience in terms of the level of indoctrination. Um, Can you tell us about how they start new hunters in Oregon? Yeah, it was intense. And I don't know if this is what all of the hunter safety classes are like in Oregon or were like in Oregon. Um, I took hunter safety in, um, 2006, I believe maybe it was 2007. I think it was 2006. Um, and I, I called to try to get into a hunter safety class and there had only, there was only one, what they call all ages class offered that year. And it had already happened. So, or no, there was one adults class that had already happened. So I was welcome to join an all ages class. Um, then there was one, the, the one that started the soonest after I called was in this little rural area, probably 40 miles north of here called Culver. And it's this little farming community. So I signed up for it and I think it was two nights a week for probably four weeks or something. Um, and I got there and I was the only adult in the class. There were other adults there, but they were just parents there to watch their kid go through hunter safety. And I think, I think that one of the reasons that the class was as intense as it was is because this was just a tight knit little farming community. And the two people who, the two volunteers who taught the class were, um, the, County Sheriff, I think, was one of the volunteers. And then um, this guy who was essentially like the city manager um, for the city. So this was a this was a almost like a patriotic thing to to participate in this Culver um, hunter safety class. Um, they they really viewed it as like raising their youth right to to have them go through this process. And at least half the class was about gun handling um, because each day they divided the class into two groups and you know, one half would go with one instructor, Evie, and they'd practice gun handling. And the other half would kind of work on like book smarts, where we would learn trivia, such as what's the most dangerous type of hunting, turkey hunting. Um, I remember that fact from, from Hunter Safety <laughs> too. Um, there's like, you, you can't really wear any colors and be safe in, in turkey season. But anyway, um, so we had this set of old rifles that had padlocks that they'd apparently lost the keys to. So the rifles were inoperable, but they had padlocks through them. And um, we would just spend the class learning to like how to walk with the rifle and hold it safely and how to pass it to somebody when you're going to cross the stream. And so we would just like walk around this classroom pretending that we were coming up to different situations and making sure that we held the gun safely. And we did this for, you know, we had like, I don't know, 16 meetings or some 12 meetings or something as a class. And we did this for all but two of them. This was most of what we would do is just walking around holding these guns and um, trying to keep them pointed in a safe direction at all times, which is really hard when you're in a room with, you know, 12 other people, there's not that many safe directions. And 
Um, and then the last two days of the class, we actually uh, fired the guns in a shooting range nearby too, and then took a test. Um, but I, yeah, the, the next, I think that the first day they divided in the, cl- the class into people who were under 12 and people who were over 12. And so I was 26 at the time and I was just way older than anybody, <laughs> anybody else in the class. And, um, it was funny. I thought, I, I thought at one point that I could impress, uh, one of my classmates by telling him that I could drive. And he was so impressed that I could whistle, forget driving. <laughs> he was really impressed that I could whistle. Um, these were pretty little kids, a lot of them. Um, but it ended up being this really great experience because as somebody who grew up in Washington, DC, and was just terrified of guns and never had anything to do with guns. Um, I was really forced to confront like the worst case scenario, which was children with guns was like what you always learned was what you, the worst thing that could happen is for a kid to get a gun. And here I was surrounded by these kids. Some of them were 10 years old and um, they were pretty responsible. Um, They were, there were some of them that kind of, (laughs) I think were like me, they were pretty overwhelmed and scared of the whole prospect of carrying a loaded gun around. But There was one kid in particular that just, I mean, he's probably an expert hunter by now, for sure. I mean, he probably was a couple of years after we took that class. He was 11 years old and he was, I would have, I would have gone hunting with him. Um, He's just trustworthy and competent. And um, it was really reassuring to see that. And the whole class just forced me to confront a lot of my own issues that were, that were big barriers. I mean, if I hadn't taken that particular class, if I'd been in a class with other adults, I I don't know how far I would have gotten in learning to hunt. Um, I I had a lot of hangups and issues and that class really helped me get over a lot of them. That's, that's great. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting story, you know, for a lot of reasons. And one of them, I, I tend to stray towards the not interested in government regulations side of the spectrum, but, you know, gun handling, especially when you're out in the woods trying to take a life, I feel like that's an area where maybe it's okay for the, the state to have a little bit of an involvement. And, you know, you're like, oh, the 12 classes that we were in, I was like, well, we sat maybe eight hours and we didn't even take the full eight hours in South Carolina mm-hmm. um, one time, you know, and so. Well, I think now um, most people who take hunter safety in Oregon take it online. Okay. So. Um, and maybe that's just Again, the modernization. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also I mean, this was a little town oh, sorry, where this was a little a rural area where at the time, um, I'm sure I'm sure most of the families in that town didn't have high speed internet access in the home. You know, taking an online class in 2006 in Culver, Oregon, that that just wouldn't have happened. Um, now, even in a place like Culver, about a lot of kids do their hunter safety lessons online. Um, you, you also talked about some women only workshops that the state offered in the book. You mentioned pheasant. I saw a talk where you um, mentioned one for rabbit. And it's just kind of, it seems to me, assumed that women and children need extra help and mentorship and that men don't, right? Um, and to some extent, this is borne out in the data. Most hunters are men. They started as children. They were taught by their fathers and they have generally higher retention rates. And this is one of those areas where, you know, I'm a white man, but I wasn't taught by my father. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for me to find access, right? Like how do I, as yeah. this 
this demographic find something for me, right? And I've found it maybe that veterans is an area that I can look into. But there is a broader demographic shift happening, right? The number of hunters are declining. The average age of hunters is increasing. And it's important because of how the American model for wildlife conservation works. Hunters and shooters drive conservation funding through fees and taxes on those activities. And it's important to grow the number of hunters overall in order to keep up a strong conservation program in the U.S. Um, New hunters are increasingly coming from urban non-hunting families. And I've read that women are the fastest growing population segment among new hunters. So I'm interested in your perspective, having gone through these types of workshops, what's your position on them? Do women need special treatment when it comes to recruitment? I don't know about special treatment, but I know from talking to people who are strategizing about new hunter recruitment, that women are viewed as a key to um, the long-term, you know, repairing this decline in hunting in the long-term. And the idea is that, um, that we really need to get more young people to hunt and that it's going to be harder to keep young people hunting if the uh, mother in the family doesn't hunt. Um, there's lots of examples, I guess there's lots of data of a family where the dad hunts and the kids just don't do it, um, or, or give it up, but that in a family where the mom hunts, the kids are more likely to hunt. And so, um, that's something, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert on the data or, or where this strategy is really coming from, but I know that that's a lot of what's behind this push to try to get more women to hunt. Um, that they're viewed as the key to ensuring that the next generation really sticks with it. Um, I don't know that it's that women need more special help. I will say that as a woman, I think there's a lot of times, particularly with something like hunting, which is kind of viewed as this male dominated activity, there's going to be a greater level of comfort for women if it's if an if uh, an event is advertised as a women's event, um, you know the the hunter safety class that I took is a good example. I don't remember how many students there were total, but I think there was only two girls in the class besides me, um, and all the other participants in the class were boys. So it was definitely male dominated even at that young age, even though most of the kids in the class were 11 and 12, it was almost all boys. Um, so I think one of the big reasons for these female only hunting events is just to try to make women feel more comfortable. Um, it's complicated women and hunting. I mean, you think about the way that hum- hunting is portrayed um, in mainstream media. It's not, it's not a real welcoming space for women. Um, that's something that we need need to work on. Uh, there is this, um, I don't know, this like hypersexualization of the female hunting sex pot kind of character that the happens. Hunters, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know, I don't know how to how to get away from that, how to combat that, but it's 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 a turn off for sure. As a woman who's still, you know claiming a space in the hunting community, it's, it doesn't, doesn't make me feel welcome that that's kind of the, the, the typical female portrayal. It's, it's interesting to me that you would say that because, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm trying to start a 
a blog here, no, a blog and a, and a podcast. And so I've got an Instagram presence and that's basically the only social media that I use. And it's very porny, right? Like when you get to Instagram and hunting, it's like I'm being shown women in bikinis and women in things yeah. that seem very impractical for hunting and, you know, tight pants. And, and I'm like, I, I'm conflicted, right? Like there was a time in my life where I'm like, well, this is cool, but now I'm, you know, I'm yeah. 40 and I'm like, this is, I guess it's, you know, sex sells and we're trying to get attention, right? Like clicks and likes are the things that we're after in the social media space. But at the same time, like this seems very disingenuous, disingenuous to me. Um, and maybe, maybe it's not that way, right? Like there was a recent article in outside magazine. And when I said recent, I mean, it's maybe within the last six months, uh, about the, the win, women hunters of Instagram. And it was received very poorly, I think, because it was focused on what they look like and not, yeah their skill as hunters. Right. And, and so that's the thing that really, I don't understand as right. Like I'm not in that demographic, but do we want to be taken seriously or do we want to get likes and clicks by showing cleavage and tight pants? Yeah. Right? Like, and I don't, I don't understand that dimorphism. And It's hard. I mean, you look at any, any cultural, you know, any cultural niche. And I think that the whole idea of celebrity is going to open up this can of worms where you start to pick apart people's appearances. And I don't know how, how to get away from that exactly, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's not, um, I don't know. There's a lot there. We need We need a sociologist on the show to come <laughs> pick this apart for you, but there's also just, I mean, it's hard as a woman looking for um, comfortable and practical hunting apparel and gear can be difficult too. There's like this, um, you know, it's very easy to find pink camo and stuff like that. But, um, you know, even, even big companies like, um, like Orvis or something, you look at their men's section and they have all this like upland hunting gear and all the, all these, you know, nice like hunting pants and stuff. And, um, I mean, I, my husband would be rolling his eyes if he was listening to this, cause I've gone on lots of Orvis rants about this, but then you get to the women's section and it's like, quilted barn coats and things that are just they're expecting women to do a different activity than what the men sure. are doing. And I just, you know, um, just from a practical standpoint, I'm a fairly small woman and I've tried, tried the men's extra small <laughs> from Orvis and it doesn't really work. I mean, actually like my bird vest is a men's, um, Orvis vest and I love it, but it doesn't fit me. It doesn't matter cause it's a bird vest, but, um, you know, it's just little things like that. And and then these newer hunting, com- hunting apparel companies, um, they don't sell women's, women's clothing either. So it's tricky. There's a chicken and egg aspect to a lot of these training programs that you're talking about, where they're trying to get women, bring them into the fold, make them feel comfortable with the sport, get them excited about it. Um, but then once you get in, there's just not, not that much there. I, I can certainly appreciate that. I mean, I've, I've shopped at Orvis and I don't want to bash on anybody, but I've shopped at Orvis a total of two times and I've returned to both pieces of clothing and I've worked bought from them because they're not, they're cut for a certain physique, which I don't fall into. And so I, I, I feel your, I feel your pain, although I'm sure it's more prevalent for women than men. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's, 
yeah, we could we could do a whole show about that. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> nobody would listen to it. Well, yeah. <laughs> but we nobody's could. gonna listen to this, so you're fine. <laughs> um, is there anybody then? Let's I mean let's let's start talking about things, folks that are doing it right. Is there anyone doing anything in particular that you follow or that you're excited about in terms of either popular hunting media or popular hunting apparel or whatever? I mean. Do you have like a favorite brand to go to? I've seen I've seen a couple of ladies centric brands, and I and I you know and I can appreciate that they're out there. Um, no, I'm like I I fit in with a lot of hunters in that I just don't want to buy new stuff. <laughs> uh, no, but I I should have I should have done some research on this. There are quite a few um, quite a few. I mean, I follow a lot of the um, meat eater guys on Instagram and places like that. And I think that they do a good, I think that a lot of times their treatment of women is thoughtful. They're guys, but they're, but they're open-minded and they're, they're not, they don't have an overtly sexist attitude towards the women. They have women on the show and stuff like that. I I will say, I think that this is something that where um, fishing is a lot more evolved than hunting is in the women and media department. Um, Cause there's some women I, I, I'll have to pull up my Instagram account to look and see, but there's some women, um, you know, fly fishing guides and kind of fly fishing personalities in particular who are known and popular and they're seem like they're respected for their expertise and their fishing abilities and their knowledge and, um, not their appearance. I don't know. It, It just seems like it's a, um, I can't think of a lot of women hunting figures. And this is probably my fault. I'm sure they're out there. I just am not paying close enough attention. But it does seem like fishing has just more of that. There's just a little bit more, um, at least gender diversity in how it's popularized. Yeah. And I guess the reason why this interests me, right, is because as the father of a son, I want to understand the message right, that I should convey to my son as regards women um, in general, right? Like be respectful is obviously like anybody can say that, but like, what is it about being a man that is the thing that, you know, makes it uncomfortable to be around? Mm -hmm. I I don't know, right? Like, I don't know because a lot of what I hear is that, you know, it's just male dominated. Well, male dominated is the way that it is. And as a man in, in a space where most of the other participants are men. Like how do you make it comfortable for women without just rejecting the fact that you're there? Right. Should I self censor? Should I tell him not to participate? Yeah. I don't know. I will say, I think that, I think that when it comes to things like, like social media and kind of media coverage, I think printing just has a hard, hard time period. I mean, you think about like um, different platforms like Instagram, for instance, where, you know, it's a photo centric social media platform. Um, A lot of hunting pictures are just problematic for a big percentage of the population. And that's just going to be, that's a big hurdle to get over. Whereas fishing is easier, you know, you can have the, you're holding the fish the right way. It's close to the water. That fish is going to be fine. Or if it's not, the people looking at the picture don't know that. Um, Hunting is just so much more fraught. And so when you start to condense everything down to, you know, 180 characters or just a one photo caption, um, it's hard to keep the the nuance and the level of respect that can really 
bring outsiders into the fold and make them feel comfortable and make them feel like this is a community that that treats others with respect. And so it's just, it's just hard. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I don't know how hunting is going to adjust to that. Um, I'm sure there's, again, this is something that I'm talking about just from my consumer standpoint. I'm sure there are people who've put a lot of thought into this and um, have something much more insightful to say about it. But there's a lot of barrier and there's a lot there that's going to be hard hard for hunting to overcome in terms of the messaging, I think. And I think women, you know, how women get brought into the fold is, is part of it, but there's other, there's other, other barriers there too. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's just, I don't, I don't, I don't have answers to that. I am really careful because I was writing my book about hunting for people who weren't already hunters um, when my social media accounts were more associated with the book, um, I tried to be really careful not to, you know, I didn't have like the kill shot that was going to be on a brag board somewhere. I wasn't posting that. Um, it's just too, it's too hard. It's too hard to convey along with a picture like that, what that hunting experience means and what, um, what went into it, what, what got me up to that moment. I mean, I have those pictures, you know, when I shot a bull elk, I have lots of pictures of me, you know, holding the antlers up and posing with it um, right after it died. But I don't really share those because to me, it's too easy to look at a picture like that. If you're not somebody who's a hunter, it's too easy to look at that and simplify that whole complicated experience down to glorifying the death of an animal. I don't feel that way when I walk past a brag board at an outdoor store. I don't feel the way I used to before I hunted. Um, But I definitely remember what I used to think walking by that. And um, I don't really see as somebody who's trying to convey a message that's complicated and nuanced and I think thoughtful. Um, I don't do myself any favors by putting an image like that out there. That's going to just undo so much of that work and turn it into this one simplified thing. Sure. No, I, I get it. I mean, I, for me coming into hunting 36 years old, I was at a point where I was willing to put a little mental horsepower behind the actual experience. And it was totally different than what I expected based on what I'd seen and stuff like those gripping deerings, right? Where you see just somebody holding up the antlers of this buck or whatever. And you're like, that's such a small portion of the mm-hmm. experience, right? It's, a, it's just, it's, it's a fleeting piece of what may be a very involved and, and drawn out kind of an experience. And, and so it was, for me, it was tough to just be like, oh, I've, I've misunderstood this whole thing for so long. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I think it's fascinating, right? Like you think you know, and then you do it and you're like, oh, I have no idea. It's, it's interesting because I have, you know, like giving pictures to different media outlets and stuff when they're doing a story about me or doing an interview with me or something. There are pictures that I have shared very frequently that are pretty graphic, like pictures about pictures of me butchering that same elk, for example. 
um, where I've got a quarter hanging up and I'm cutting pieces of it off. I mean, um, and I could, I think that those are pictures that could potentially offend somebody who doesn't have, um, a lot of awareness of butchering or hunting. But I also think that that just shows more, it shows so much more of the experience than the kill. Right. Um, it shows the, the utility of it. It shows the hard work involved in it. Um, it shows the productivity of it, which in some, in some ways like false advertising <laughs> to be focusing on that in your hunting pictures. But um, it just can tell more of a story, even though it's kind of, more gross and um, can be harder, harder for some people to see than the animal while it's still intact. So, yeah, I don't know. It's complicated. I think the messaging behind hunting is just, that's just going to be, that's going to be an ongoing thing. I mean, you need to get people to rethink what they've dismissed for a long time. And I don't know how to do it. I mean, I'm somebody who wrote a book for people who don't hunt and didn't really get many of those people to read it. So <laughs> it was a good book. We're going to talk about it. Um, <laughs> anyway. So you're so I want I want to talk more about you as a mom, right? You're a your mom, um, and how has how has motherhood informed your your passion for hunting? Right? We talked about this idea that moms who hunt are they're going to be the key to longevity of their offspring staying with hunting, but how is, how is motherhood informed your passion for hunting? I know it, it maybe is the, you know, driven a spike in your, the frequency of your hunting. Yeah. The logistics have become a lot more difficult, but, um, you know, so much of parenting for me is about like seeing the value in these little moments and what can we, what can we get out of this, this moment or this experience? And there's things like, um, you know, things like doing a float trip on a river for a couple of nights. My husband and I used to do that a lot before we had kids. And then we took a couple of years off when our kids were really, really little. Um, we still did a lot of camping, but we weren't, you know, putting in at one spot and floating for days down, down river and taking out somewhere else until my youngest was like two or three. And, um, I feel like the, that kind of outdoor experience is just so much more um, intense as a parent. Um, it's, I have more anxiety about the things that could go wrong, but I also enjoy when things go well so much more than I did when it was just two of us. I don't know. We used to do stuff like that and it just seemed so casual. And now when we do stuff like that, it's such a big deal. You know, it's, we can't just go, um, float on the river for a few nights uh, or a few days um, with two little kids, you know, it's gotta be a big deal. Like a lot of planning goes into that. Um, just a lot of preparation goes into it. But then when you're out there, it's just amazing. It's like this incredible experience to share something like that with my kids and see what they, what they get out of it. Um, and so I think one of the things that's changed for me about hunting is just, it feels like, it feels like it's going to be really rediscovering hunting kind of on a, on a, bigger scale when I do that with my kids, because I feel like it's just going to be, um, I don't know, it's going to be incredible, um, to get to see them experiencing something like that and be able to give them all the lessons that come along with, come along with something as intense and exciting and, um, 
you know, in some ways, well, for me, hunting is life-changing, but as life-changing as hunting, um, to get to see my kids go through that and share that with them, um, I feel like it will really intensify, intensify hunting for me. I also think I will be much more anxious about hunting. And I, every time I hunt, I have some anxiety about it. Just the, I'm still just not, you know, it's not that I'm not comfortable with a loaded gun. Obviously I'm okay with that or I wouldn't hunt at all. But, um, you know, it takes some, I have to really mentally prepare and, um, that's part of just taking it seriously for me. Um, it's going to be, that's going to be next level when I've got my kids out there. But. I'm, I'm always surprised or, or taken aback when my son sees something for the first time that he finds joy or, yes. or just curiosity in, right? Like, and, and that's the thing is like, it's easy to forget that he's never seen a lot of stuff for the very first time. And mm-hmm. when you see, see your child, see something for the very first time. And it's just that they like kind of just like, don't know what to do with themselves. Like, should I be scared? Should I be excited? Should I be happy? Like what that just understanding like how to process that for me, I, I just love seeing that. With yeah, I do too. Them. I mean, that's, my kids ha- have added a lot of a lot of color to my life. I'm just like really saturated all of these experiences. I mean, there's a lot of little things. Tomorrow is um, oh, is this going to mess up, mess things up if I refer to the date? No, no. Tomorrow. So today is the 16th of March, 2021. Tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day, which I, I'm part of my family is Irish, but it was just never a big deal to me. Even as a kid, my kids are so excited about St. Patrick's Day because my oldest son, who just turned nine, is um, really into this idea of building a leprechaun trap and trying to trap a leprechaun. And tonight's their chance to do it. And um, it's just so it just brings me so much joy to see them get so excited about something like it's March 16th. Who cares? I would never have even paid attention to this particular date, but they are pumped. You know, it's like, it's like Halloween or something for them. They're just so excited about it. And yeah, just to see that much excitement in life is really, is really fun. It's really fun. I'm way more excited about a leprechaun trap than an elf on a shelf. (laughs) Yeah, we don't do that. The elf on the shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So one of the things that I want to, we've kind of, you and I have talked about this before, but I want to talk about with, with children and the logistics, hunting while breastfeeding. Um, and, and I'll, I'll bring that up <laughs> yeah. because um, when we, when my son was born, my wife struggled and I, and I watched her struggle and it was so painful to watch her struggle to produce breast milk enough for my son. We wound up buying breast milk for my son from another person. And, um, for, the, for months, for, well, for weeks, probably six weeks, two months, I fed him from a syringe with a little spout taped to my pinky finger um, breast milk while she just went to town trying to just get what she could. And mm. and I have such a respect, right? Like it's such a natural thing. And it's weird, right? Like in our society because you hear so many people like, oh, that's disgusting. Or, oh, how could you think to breastfeed in public? And I'm like, well honestly, it's beautiful and it's very natural. And for some people, it's not that easy. Right. And so we've talked about this and you've mentioned it. So I want to understand the logistics and I want you to tell your story about hunting while breastfeeding. Yeah. I've done a couple of different hunting trips where when my um, first son was really young and it just added, I mean, 
going on a, a hunting trip, there's just a lot of logistics involved. No matter what, if you're a single man, there's still going to be a lot of logistics involved and a lot of planning. And so when you're a new parent and you're the sole source of food for that kid too, um, it just, it just adds this whole other layer of logistics. And um, yeah, I've gone on a couple of different hunting trips where I had to bring my battery powered breast pump and, you know, make sure I had enough cooler space to be able to store the milk because I needed it for when I um, got back for the baby and then also needed to make sure I had enough breast milk stored before I went hunting, uh, you know, to keep him alive while I was gone. Um, he wasn't Money great about, detail. uh, yeah, he wasn't great about taking a bottle. I mean, um, but you know, he did it. Um, yeah, it was tricky. I mean, I think there's, yeah, I don't know. This kind of fits into what we were talking about before about how women are portrayed with hunting too, because I think there's just more, <laughs> there's just physically like more logistics for women, to deal with, you know, you've got to figure out like, is that, that elk trip gonna, are you going to get your period on that elk trip? What other, you know, just what other supplies you need? It's complicated. And I don't say this because I think we need a lot of extra treatment, but it's ironic that we're viewed as the weaker sex or by some people maybe less equipped to hunt. Um, I watched my wife give birth. (laughs) Yeah. It's, there's, there's a lot, if, if you're a new mom in particular and you're going hunting, there's a lot to, you, you have to be pretty dedicated to hunting. It's hard. I remember um, when my son, when my first son was, um, so it would have been his first fall. So he would have been not quite a year old, maybe like nine months or something. And I was deer hunting and my husband and the baby came too, but they stayed at the camp. Um, while I went out looking for deer this one day. And I remember I just, I left them and I walked for miles and miles and miles. And it was like hours of walking. And I got to this spot and could still hear my son from where he was with my husband. I mean, he was a loud baby, but still it's just like... <laughs> This isn't gonna, <laughs> this is not gonna work. The family hunting trip with a baby, this is not gonna work. Um, yeah, there's kind of unimaginable logistics when you start involving an entire an entire family, particularly babies and all the accoutrements that they involve. I I, I guess that that explains the <laughs> precipitous drop. In hunting the precipitous pregnancy. drop, yeah. Yeah. It does make, it makes me really excited to go back to it when my kids can actually hunt themselves too. Cause I think they will, um, it does get easier every year. Like even just things like camping, it gets easier every year, you know, when they're not napping, it becomes easier. And when they don't need like tons of little plastic toys with them and, um, special sleeping gear, you know, now they're, my kids just sleep in a sleeping bag on a sleeping pad, just like, like real human beings. <laughs> just like real camping. human beings. <laughs> yeah, they don't need it. We don't need to bring a pack and play or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's cool to think about doing something like hunting when they, you know, use like real 
real human gear and can do real human things like be quiet. That's going to be cool. And I think it takes practice, right? You have to just spend a lot of time doing it. Um, We do practice things like, like sneaking quietly through the woods, trying to get close to animals, things like that. There's a lot of stuff like that, that you can practice. I can, I practice with my kids, you know, in the hopes that eventually it will lead to hunting. But right now we can do that without having to involve guns. Sure. No. And I love that idea. One of the things that I did when I started hunting, I had this mental inventory of the skills that a hunter needs, right? I crossed off everything I already knew and then focused on the things that were left, which helped me, you know, focus on the areas for improvement. Um, what do you think would be that most important skill for a new hunter or someone who is hunt curious to kind of pick up? Hmm. The most important skill. Is it sneak? How to, how to, how stealth, to stealth is important. No, I mean, I think, I think the most important skill is just being comfortable being outside in, a, in all kinds of weather. I mean, if you're comfortable, like you, you can figure out where you are in relation to, you know, where your car is. If you, um, if you are somebody who's comfortable moving around outside in difficult weather with different, you know, amounts of light and stuff like that, um, you can definitely learn to hunt. I mean, that was one of the struggles for me was that while I was learning to hunt, I was having to learn all these really basic outdoor skills. Um, one of the things that I struggled with and I still struggle with sometimes is just managing my own body temperature with my clothing. I mean, do I do a lot of cross country skiing and I'm really bad at noticing that I'm starting to get hot and I need to take a layer off before I get sweaty or I'm starting to get cold and I need to put a stop and put a layer on before I'm already, you know, before I'm freezing and it's going to take a lot of energy to warm my body back up. Um, I mean, it sounds like such a basic thing, but I think I'm somebody who just grew up in a very, you know, in a city. And usually the temperature was in this range that was somewhat comfortable to me. And I, you know, I don't know. It's like, sounds like such a basic thing, but it's something that isn't, does not come naturally to me at all. No, I, I, I actually, I think it's funny that you brought that up because I, I had a chapter in the manuscript that I'm, currently pausing called being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Um, you know, because as a child, um, my aunt, I credit my aunt, Karen, um, she loved her soaps and she was our babysitter. And for a couple of years in the eighties, she would basically, you know, when we showed up at her house, she'd put us in or whatever we showed up in and put us in the yard until the soaps were over and we weren't allowed to come back in. (laughs) So if it was raining or if it was snowing or if it Uh was whatever, you know, you had to figure out how to be comfortable outside. And it is such a, such a challenge for people who spend all day in a very narrow band of 68 to 74 yeah. degrees in the yeah. air conditioning, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I, I love, you know, the se- seasons here in Charleston, it, my goal is to open the windows from essentially uh, March through the end of May and then open the windows from, October through, I'm sorry, September through the end of October. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's usually not something we can actually do, but having that outside air come in instead of breathing, you know, air conditioning is to me, that's rewarding. So mm-hmm. um, I love that you said it. Um, who, who's going to take your, your kids through Hunter's Ed? Is it going to be you or Scott? 
you know, my guess is that we probably will all go together. Scott will need to go. I mean, I guess maybe he won't legally need to go because he's an adult. And I think in Oregon, you only have to take hunter's safety or hunter ed to get a hunting license if you're under 18. Um, but I think he will want to take it uh, with them. But I, I'd probably just take it too. I'm curious about what it's like. I hope it's not online. I hope we can find a, an in-person class. Um, maybe I can pull Jack and Evie out of retirement and have them recreate my Culver, my Culver experience. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I think probably we'll all do it. I know Scott will do it. He, he has told me that he will learn to hunt when they do. So that's another thing that makes me excited about it is it will just be a true family experience where we'll all be figuring it out together. No, that's a cool idea. As a man who was not brought up in hunting, right? The R3 models for listeners, uh, that's recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Either assumes, right, that men will get in, which I managed to do, or I guess we're just acceptable losses, right? So there's this universal <laughs> advice to find a mentor, right? Which takes a lot of serious work. Um, yeah. Right. And I, so I wonder about the efficacy of this approach and uh, understanding that guys are ashamed to ask. Some guys are ashamed to ask for help or admit weakness, right? So mm -hmm. um, becoming a hunter starts with, as an adult, as an adult male, essentially a walk of shame in front of a room full of kids and their dads, right? So I like that, I like that your kids are going to be insulated from that. But how, how do you, as yeah. a mom of boys, help them build the kind of inner strength necessary to help them overcome something like that? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, maybe, maybe I should amend my earlier answer and, and maybe even more important than, um, than having that comfort with being outdoors in all types of weather, maybe the thing that you really need is to have a, gr a growth mindset, which is something that my kids, they're not great at it, but that's something that they, um, their school, they go to a public elementary school. I have a kindergartner and a third grader, and it's a big deal at their schools, this idea of a growth mindset of being somebody who's always learning and somebody who's always trying to be better and not focusing on achievement and um, accomplishment or, you know, um, awards or things like that, but, but, but focusing on just getting better and improving. And so my kids are taught at school that, you know, you don't use, you don't say something like, I'm not good at fractions. And say something like, I'm not good at fractions yet. I'm still learning fractions. You try to use this language that reflects this desire to keep learning and keep getting better. And um, I love that. I love the humility in that. And I love the open-mindedness that it requires. Like this idea that there's always something new to learn and that it's not about who already has experienced this or who already knows all about hunting, but... Um, but how can we all get better at hunting? And um, yeah, it's true that that is, that is hard, probably harder for males than it is for females who are more used to people telling them, you know, getting mansplained and having people tell them that they're not experts on something. Um, but I think they're, they're off to a good start because that's the culture that they're raised in at school is this whole idea of, um, 
you know, it doesn't matter who's best at this thing. It matter or who's, who can, you know, what level you can read at or where you are with math. What matters is that you're trying to get better, which is beautiful because, um, you'll, if you have that mindset, you'll end up, you know, learning so much more being so much better at everything than you would if your focus was really on, you know, being the best in the room, for example. Um, I think hunting fits so well with that too, because I think, you know, you can be a really experienced hunter and somebody who just knows a space really well, you know, knows a place really well, knows a species really well, and you can go out and get skunked. I mean, it happens all the time. Um, and experienced hunters know that they know that, um, animals are not perfectly predictable. That's not how wildlife works and that's not how hunting works. And, um, you know, you have to be willing to learn and adjust and, um, people who can, you know, people who are really rigid and feel like they know the right way to do something. And this is, this is the right way. And they're not going to change. They're not going to be as successful as people who are going to be more, you know, adjusting to the environment and, and the particular situation that they're in. So it's a really nice match for that mentality. I think so. I, it resonates with me when you told me about it the first time. Um, I want to talk quickly about, you know, what benefits do you think that your kids are going to derive from hunting, right? You say that you think that they're going to start. You've seen both sides of the coin. Is there anything that you think that they're going to experience that maybe you wish you'd been exposed to when you were their age? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing for a, for a kid and particularly a teenager, I I really personally put um, like outdoor competence up on this pedestal where I feel like if you are a kid or a teenager who feels comfortable outside in the world around and um, feels like they're competent despite what the... Um, weather is or where they are, they can figure it out, they can feel comfortable, they can feel confident. I feel like that's just an enormous advantage in life to be able to be that um, flexible and to be able to adjust to the scenery around you and still feel comfortable and confident there. And so I think that's the like big picture thing that I really want my kids to get out of hunting is just this feeling of this feeling that they belong in the world and that they can take care of themselves in the world. And I don't mean that in like a, um, you know, they can in the apocalypse, like go out and, you know, be one of the last people standing. I don't, I don't mean that they can take care of themselves, like get everything that they need, but that, um, I don't know. I just think that there's a lot of, um, anxiety in modern life. And I think a lot of that could be quelled from just this feeling of calm of like, you know what, if I run out of gas and I have to walk a long way, um, I can handle it. I can do it. Um, I know how to find out where, you know, I know how to keep my bearings while I'm walking in an unfamiliar place. Um, I know how to stay warm or stay dry. I don't know, just little things like that, I think can be really reassuring to a person and can just help give them this foundation of stability. 
that's not too much to ask, right? I basically, I want my kids to get good enough at hunting that they feel confident and comfortable in any situation and they can just handle whatever life throws at them. That's all. I, I think that that's great. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what it's done for me. So, uh, or at least it's reinforced that for me. Um, that's great advice. Now to round it out, um, let's talk about your dad. He's not a hunter, right? How was he taken to your choice to become a hunter? My dad is intrigued by it. My dad is somebody who is um, uh, a city person and an indoor person. My dad has a PhD in English literature. He worked um, as an English teacher for a lot of my, he's had, he's an interesting person. He's a mechanic while a car mechanic while he worked through grad school he got a phd in english literature he taught um english he um quit doing that when i was a pretty little kid and started working in um network administration for the government just to have like a more stable job and some benefits and stuff for the family um and then he ended up just getting some computer programming books from the library, writing a computer program that would help make his job a little bit easier. And then he ended up starting a software company that was really successful. And he was a software executive when I was in high school and college. And after that, um, he's retired now, but he's just a very, he's a person who's, you know, curious and interested in a lot of different things. Um, And I think he approached hunting a little bit like, an interesting genre of book that I had discovered or something. And, um, you know, he, he enjoys hearing about it. Um, and he has done little like outdoorsy things with me. He's gone mushroom, mushroom hunting with us and he's gone with me and my kids and my husband to cut down a Christmas tree in the winter and stuff. Um, he's never asked to go hunting. Um, He's done some fishing. Yeah, he's kind of, he's, he's somebody who's not outdoorsy, but he's curious about the world and interested in a strange foreign experience like hunting. Okay. Well, I mean, if nothing else, right, choosing to hunt gave you the opportunity to write a book that I think has helped inform the dialogue around hunting. And I can only assume that he's at least proud of you for that accomplishment. He's very excited that I wrote a book. Yeah. <laughs> that, that seems <laughs> That's to right be up his alley. Yeah. Yeah. All right. He's just a supportive dad in general. So, and, and just a curious person, something that I would really love to do with my dad at some point is get him to go on one of these river trips that we do as a family, like go float for a few nights and camp with us on the river. I think it would just blow his mind. Uh, we did a lot of camping when I was a kid, but it was always camping like in a campground because it was the affordable way to travel. So we would drive to usually like a city where we were visiting somebody or going doing some touristy sightseeing kinds of things. And we would camp because it was the cheapest way to stay, stay there. Um, And so when my dad got to a certain age that wasn't even that old, but he had money and, you know, a certain level of comfort, he just said, I'm never camping again. That's it. (laughs) Not doing it. Um, so it's, we'll take some convincing to get him to go on one of these trips with us. They're somewhat rustic. Um, although that's a part of the beauty of a river trip is that it's like car camping. You can just like bring, you know, bring a cot and you can just bring everything. Um, but you do have that, then the like moral superiority of 
backpacking or something. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Um, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get him to do one of those trips with us while he's still young enough to do it. No, that's great. I, my stepdad, um, had, he was not an outdoorsman. He did not teach me how to hunt. He came into my life when I was around nine, eight or nine. And, you know, I think before he came into my life, my mom took us on a Delaware river float, right? Delaware is the longest yeah. undamed river east of the Mississippi. And, um, and that to me, like there are just little snippets of that, that I remember as a child. And I've, I've since done that as an adult. I've, I think I floated that two and a half days overnight. And, you know, my stepdad had no interest. He has a singular event in his, in his timeline of his life that he recalls having a very bad time camping and he will never mm. camp again, Yeah, which was a challenge, right? I was a boy scout and he didn't want anything to do with that. And so, um, I love being outdoors. He likes to watch hockey. And so, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, knowing that your dad is at least potentially open to the idea to me, I think that's great. I'm still looking for somebody who as an adult taught their parent to hunt. That's going to be one of the things that I think yeah. we'll find that'll be I a very interesting episode. Um, yeah. I, I love camping. It's one of my absolute favorite things to do. And I, it's just, it's interesting to me because my perspective on it is that, um, yeah, it's not comfortable. It's not real comfortable a lot of the time. No, not at all. But that's just, that's not the point at all. I mean, one of the things that I love about camping, I mean, I, I mean, there's almost nothing I'd rather do in the summer than go camping. But one of the things I love about it is coming home after you've camped, taking a taking hot a shower, shower <laughs> sleep in your bed that night. And it's just like, it's wonderful. It's just like makes, it takes this incredible vacation experience and it makes it so much better. And you can go on vacation and come home and feel your home feels luxurious. There's like, like there's nothing better than camping. Uh, that's such, I love that. It's such, I've never really thought about it in that sense, but as soon as you said that, I knew exactly where you're going with it. And you're absolutely right. It's um, one of the unsung. Yeah. It's just one of the great things about camping. We don't really give that enough credit about camping. Plus, if I you're good at it, you're going to, you should. Yeah. Um, plus if you're good at it, you can, hopefully survive the apocalypse. Yeah. I, it's funny. People, people joke with me about that. And I feel like they're not as much now with the pandemic, there's not as much like preppers don't seem as funny anymore, no, but, um, not at all. but people used to joke with me about that. Like, Oh, you'll be a good, a good friend to have during the apocalypse. And I, <laughs> I don't like my chances in the apocalypse. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Do I own guns and ammo? Yes but I, I don't like my odds. <laughs> I, I think you'd be surprised. Um, before, before we wrap up, can you think of someone who has a great story that you would want to hear from on this podcast after, after having been through the experience? Yeah, I have a couple, my friends, um, my friends, Andy and Jesse, um, who, who are in my book a little bit. They're, uh, they're a couple and they're, they're married and have two kids now. Um, and actually, Andy's whole family has a lot of hunting experience that could be interesting to talk to. But yeah, Andy and Jesse Fisher, they're just, um, they live in Montana. They're just a real hunting family. Jesse learned as an adult, um, kind of at the, at the same, she was learning at the same time that I was learning. She just got really good really fast. <laughs> um, yeah, they have a lot of, they just have a lot of stories to tell. They're just really neat people too. And they just have a different, 
they live in a very different place than I do and have different, different perspective. Andy grew up in Montana in Missoula. Um, and his dad was, a is a uh, wildlife biologist. So he grew up just in a real, just a really dedicated hunting family. Hunting was important. They took it seriously and they had a lot of fun with it, but it was just a really big part of his, his childhood. Um, yeah, they'd be great. I'll put you in touch with them. That'd be, that'd be great. That's why I asked this question is I'm, I'm so interested in people who have interesting stories. And then also this helps me find the next episode. Mm -hmm. So, um, you don't happen by any chance to have a dad joke that you're willing to share or a mom joke. I, have, you do. I, I do have a good dad joke for you. It's one of my kids' favorite jokes. And it's sort of tied to hunting because it's about eating. Okay. 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 Why was six afraid of seven? Why? <laughs> because seven, eight, nine. I love that joke. I love, <laughs> I that, love joke. that joke. I didn't, I didn't want to steal your thunder, but I <laughs> Thank I you. That was so nice of you, Brandon. Thanks for letting me get that punching. <laughs> I wanted you to have all of it. Um, okay, so what are you up to these days? Are you still writing? I'm still writing, yeah. And my kids are actually back in school. Okay. So right now, so I'm writing a ton. It's really exciting. <laughs> I haven't been able to write for almost a year, so. Yeah. Where, uh, if anywhere, can our listeners find you and how can they support you? Um, you know, I'm just like writing for a handful of clients that aren't, yeah, I'll let you know when I have my next piece placed somewhere exciting that they can go visit and read. Please do. That's it for this episode, folks. Pick up a copy of Call of the Mild, Learning to Hunt My Own Dinner. I understand it's not in publication at this point. Um, you know, it's still at a lot of libraries. I do think it's out of print, though. You can, you can get it. It's just, it's really expensive and <laughs> hard to find. Or well, you can buy it in or not, German. Or buy it in German, right. Whether or not you hunt, uh, I thought it was an enjoyable read and I think it would be worth purchasing. Um, and I think there's somewhere, something in there for everyone. Uh, Lily, I'm really grateful that you shared your story with me today. Thank you. Um, is there anyone that you'd like to give a shout out to before we close? Oh, I always want to give out a shout out to my husband. And he's just super supportive, and I'm excited for him to learn to hunt someday. Great. Great. Well, thank you for doing it. Thanks, Brandon. With that, another episode of Hunting Fatherhood is in the books. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out huntingfatherhood.com. You can listen to past episodes, read the blog, and find ways to support the show. Speaking of helping me out, send suggestions for future guests of Hunting Fatherhood by email to stories at huntingfatherhood.com or on Instagram to at huntingfatherhood. Be sure to listen, download, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll be back for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.